Let's read from Ephesians 2. I want to read to you from verse 11 and that last sort of section of that chapter. We're going to be speaking about the theme of the power of church for the city. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, he means Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, and he means the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Up to now, in our series, Church in the City, we have been majoring on God's passion and love for the city and cities worldwide, but especially uh, the city of London. And I've been trying to make a biblical case to get you to a point where you feel a passion and a call and an importance for the work being here in this particular location. But I also started the series by saying that I want you to feel that equally in terms of the call to the church and what it means to be engaged with the mission of the church and that those two things should not be in competition with one another, city versus church, and that we should not be majoring on just one, that you shouldn't be the kind of person who's come to London and then church is an afterthought, but neither the kind of person who's committed to the church, but inconveniently it just happens to be in London, that we are called to be people who are passionate about this city and also about this church. And uh, I think... Of the two ideas up to this point, actually, it's church in the city that doesn't automatically make sense or fit in many people's minds. We can get excited about London, we can get excited about the city, but the idea of church in the city, somehow those, it seems incongruous. It doesn't seem to kind of fit together. And I know this firsthand because whenever I'm in a sort of social gathering with people I don't know, particularly people who are outside um, the church, who are not churchgoers, um, I'm fairly confident just making conversation with people, ask them questions, get to know people a little bit. And there always come a point in the conversation where they suddenly turn it around and ask, so what do you do? And at which point, as you can imagine, um, I, gen- I tend to meet a range of reactions. But the two that are always most common is either the awkward silence. When, someone, when I turn, I say, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And they go... 
and physically just slightly rotate away from me, <laughs> fix their eyes in the middle distance, and hope that the conversation comes to a swift end. Or the, 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 the obvious shock and puzzlement that then tumbles into many, many more questions.、Um, a church in the city? What do you mean you started a church? What? Um, and, and what kind of church? And what does it look like? And what do you do? And all these kind of things. Because for many people, they don't, they don't expect it of me. They don't expect to meet、um, people who are passionate about, committed to the church in, in, in London. It just isn't kind of in people's radar. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, why the church seems so out of place in the city. One is because the city is modern, and the church as an institution is antiquated. So if the city stands for everything that is cutting edge and new, The Church of Jesus Christ is, you know, in London, possibly one of the, if not the oldest institution that exists in the city of London, isn't it?、Um, you know, many institutions have come and gone, but the church actually has a long heritage in the city. It's antiquated in that sense.、Um, not this particular church, but as, an organ, as a kind of institution, right? You get what I'm saying? Another reason is because if the city is all about、uh, a progressive way of thinking, By progressive, you know, we, we talk about moral progressiveness and, and we talk ethical and we talk about cultural progressiveness and all these kinds of things. And the city of London tends to be on the very forefront of change within society at large, doesn't it? Leading the way in those things, thinking differently, thinking in, in modern terms. If the city is progressive, the church is committed to and stubbornly committed to what the Bible calls the ancient paths. There is a, an, an unwilling,、um, a kind of stubborn unwillingness to budge on certain things that we consider to be vitally important for human flourishing. And、uh, those churches that do budge tend to then fizzle out and die. And the churches that remain committed to what they believe is true, the ancient paths, tend to be those that are most different from the city and stand out from it and don't seem to fit in in many ways, but also often flourish as a result. Another thing is that if the city is fast paced, and it is, I mean, your lives are fast paced, right? And, and everything about London is, is, is brisk and breathless. If the city is fast paced, the church is slow. We are、um, committed to slowness in many ways. It's part of the very DNA of what it means to be the church, that we don't, we're not rushing anywhere. We're planted by God's grace, and we expect. Um, slow incremental transformation of society by the preaching of the gospel. I've got a book that's titled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And the picture is of a church that just sat there and just waited and bided its time and just taught about who Jesus was and eventually overturned an empire in a few centuries in, in, in the empire of Rome. And this is the way the church works. There's nothing, no, we're not in a hurry. We're not trying to sort of drum up new ways of doing things. We're not trying to be the, the latest, flashiest thing on the block.、Um, we're committed to just slow plodding with Jesus. And that doesn't really fit with London, does it, in the way London functions and works? And if London is all about the kind of what has really become a doctrine in, in the way people live these days, you only live once, YOLO. If London is about that, If, and it is really, you come to London to experience maximum pleasure, maximum entertainment, maximum success. Everything is full tilt because I'm young once and I may as well live、uh, well while I'm, while I'm alive. If London is about that, and the church comes and preaches self denial and service 
and uh, a kind of a self-effacing, humble and meek way of life. And you think that is absolutely countercultural with the way the city thinks, lives and breathes. It doesn't seem to fit. And so the question I'm trying to ask you today is, what place does the church have in a city such as this? What value does it have in a city such as this? When everything we seem to be about often flies in the face of what the city loves. And I, I want to suggest to you that if you're the kind of person who has not seen the value of the church, I want to provoke you and encourage you to rethink that today. I, want to, I, I think this is so incredibly important today because many people understand that spirituality matters and they may even understand that Jesus matters. But one thing that we find very difficult to, to make that leap towards in the individualistic age is that the church is part of God's plan and actually matters incredibly, it has incredible significance in God's mind. And I think it's possible for you to live your life without ever seeing the value of the church and therefore to miss out on it. Has anyone heard of Ronald Wayne? I wouldn't expect you to. Ronald Wayne was a 10% shareholder in Apple when the company was founded. He put some money in to stimulate the thing and was a bit of an investor. And uh, a few years later, he sold all his interest in Apple for $2,300. If he had kept hold of his stake in the company, and he didn't have to work, he didn't have to do anything, he just had to keep hold of it. If he'd kept hold of it, today it would be worth $75 billion. There is a man who did not see the value of something until it was too late. Bitcoin is another example of this, right? If seven years ago, in 2010, you had splurged on five pounds worth of Bitcoin, just forgone that McDonald's and bought yourself some Bitcoin instead, today it would be worth 4.4 million pounds. And you'd have done nothing to earn that money, right? Now often, certain things in life, you only see the value of them with hindsight. And that is my suggestion to you about the church of Jesus Christ. That the church of Jesus Christ is profoundly important and profoundly of worth and a treasure, in fact, worth giving your life to. And I want to give you three reasons why the church matters to this city. The first is this. That the church offers true community in a fragmented city. I think we're all very conscious that one of the great weaknesses and sicknesses of society these days is relational fragmentation. It's one of the ironies, isn't it, of living in a city like London, that the more people that are around, the more socially isolated you can become. There's now more people around you to ignore you. There's more people around to not be friendly to you. And you feel awash, don't you, among crowds and of, of people, none of whom you know or love or feel affection for and, and receive affection from. And it's one of the great ironies that the more people you have in a city like this, the more that becomes an acute sense that people have of pain, of isolation and loneliness. Now I know some of you may feel that very acutely. And some of us feel it just in moments of our lives, but it's not the common theme. But I think you've got to recognize that loneliness is, is, is on the rise these days. 
I've read a, a whole little flurry of articles that have come out recently about this because people are beginning to recognize that loneliness is not just um, a condition, a situation. It's even a, a cause of physical, biological uh, lack of health. They're calling it a loneliness epidemic because actually to be lonely is more dangerous to your health and this has been proved by Massive meta-studies of many, many um, research projects is more dangerous to your health than being obese. And very few people these days are offering prescriptions and answers to this, this situation that the world is getting lonelier and more isolated with every passing year. Oh, it was just an example of this that was from the news a couple of weeks ago. Did you hear how there was a scheme that, that surfaced that the NHS wanted to put patients in people's homes as a, a kind of way of relieving the financial burden in the NHS? And at first you think it sounds really stupid, doesn't it? Like, why would a patient want to go to a random person's home uh, when they, they could be at hospital receiving the best care and all that kind of stuff? And, like, and, then, and then you understand the reasons why. They're saying because there was a lot of people blocking beds in hospitals who in other situations would have left the hospital and gone home and be cared for by family and relatives, uh, people around them, the support network. But in our day and age, that network is vanishing. And therefore, in the absence of a support network, only the nurses and the doctors are left to take care of people. And this is, a, this is what's happening in our world, and we mustn't blind ourselves to it. I read another article that said that research shows that when you're, you have the most friends in your early 20s, and it gets worse from there. <laughs> so guys, just be aware of this. And technology seems to be intensifying this problem, doesn't it? Not only does it become the intermediary between us that we forgo face-to-face relationships because we connect via technology now, but also that even when we're thrust into each other's company, technology is constantly interrupting genuine relationships and stopping us from experiencing heart-to-heart, face-to-face human connection. There was an article in The Guardian that came out two or three weeks back about this, and the title was, Our Minds Can Be Hijacked. And it was actually a bunch of, of pioneers of various technologies in, in, in the social media age, men and women who'd invented things like the red notification on Facebook and the like button on Facebook, who were now blowing the whistle and saying, we never knew what these things would do to us and do to people in terms of their, their addiction to, to technology. And one example stood out to me when I was reading the article. It was the guy who invented the pull to refresh. You know that evil thing when you pull the app and you see what, if anything new is coming up and it, and it just randomly will pop up something new. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does and you never quite know whether it's going to be something new, whether it'll be exciting or not. And that's how addiction works. It's like the randomness of it delivering you the thrill makes you want to keep pulling to refresh like a little stupid rabbit stuck in a cage. Just like, and they... He said, the guy who invented this said, I regret every minute that I'm not paying attention to my two kids because my smartphone has sucked me in. And I'm just trying to sort of paint a picture here for us that we all actually are very aware of, of the intense problem of isolation, of loneliness and disconnection from humans, from other people and of community. And then we throw into that another factor here that causes social fragmentation, which is 
the rise of prejudice and of misunderstanding of fear that in many ways we think shouldn't be happening today. We're living in the global village, aren't we? Where, ev- where national boundaries are slowly being erased and, we're, and where people move fluidly from country to country and where we can connect with people in Tokyo faster than you can connect with people in Croydon. And you, you've got this kind of world going on, the global village, but at the same time, in terms of our mindset, in terms of our, the way we think, we're becoming more siloed and disconnected from one another. With the rise of populism as a reaction to the global village thing and of people wanting to bed down into what they consider safe my 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 group my tribe my reality and it means that even in a diverse city like this one your relationships may actually be quite a narrow slice of society. They may be different colors and different races, but actually maybe you have very similar backgrounds, very similar educational privileges, similar wealth, similar morality, similar outlook on life. And the idea that the world is getting more sort of united is a little bit of a myth, isn't it, when you think about it? Because actually you could probably step out of here, what, five minutes and encounter people who you would never dream of making friends with in the real world. None of this should surprise us. The Bible diagnoses the human condition as relational sickness. That even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sinned, it wasn't the eating of the fruit in itself that was the big deal. It was the relational fragmentation that came between them and God, that they had rebelled against God. And so the first division came between them and the father that then hid from him. And then, of course, the second one came. That then there was this rift that came between them as people. And you begin to see how sin, the most obvious way that sin affects us, is that it starts to break down relationships. And we are relational creatures and we do not experience health and well-being except through the give and take of love. Firstly, in relation to God but then also in relation to your fellow humans. And that you cannot fix that unless you can deal with the sin issue which divides us, which gives birth to envy and rivalry and competition and judging and also shame which causes us to withdraw and hide from one another. And all of you, I guarantee that those emotions have been present even in this room as we've gathered this morning. All of those things and more. In verse 12, this, this verse really sums up the kind of problems I want to put my finger on for why the city needs a church. But he, verse 12, he says, Remember that you at that same time, at that time, separated from Christ, there's a relational different distance, and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the image in my mind when I was just meditating on this, it's like this. Imagine you're out on a snowy night. Have you ever been out on one of those nights where it's dark and the wind is galing and your clothes do not seem to hold out the cold and you feel it gets, starts to get into your bones? And imagine you're out in the middle of nowhere with the wind blowing, the snow in your face and the darkness and the cold penetrating you and you see a log cabin 
and this kind of condensation on the windows and a warm glow coming from inside. And as you go up, you press your face against the glass to see a table full of people enjoying a banquet of food and the master of the house sat there, the roaring fire behind him, engaging people, loving them. And you can't get in. And that is the condition, Paul says, of what it means to be outside of Christ and outside of the church. That without knowing Jesus, you are in the cold and on the outside. You are separated from Christ, he says, and alienated from the commonwealth, outside of the joy of what it means to be part of God's people. But the gospel, the message of Christianity... If sin comes in to destroy relationships, the gospel comes in to heal them and to fix them. In verse 13 it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, you who are out in the cold, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus tells parables, like one of them describes guests coming to a wedding feast but not dressed properly. And how they are walled out. And it's a picture of what it means to try to come to God, but wearing nothing but your your sin and your good works, and you're not dressed properly for the feast. But you've got to understand that the reason why he says you're brought near by the blood of Christ is because he's saying an atonement has been paid to deal with the sin which divided you from God and divides you from other people. And it's as though Jesus takes your filthy rags, takes them off you and dresses you in robes that make you acceptable and feel dignified when you come into the feast. This is what it means to be brought near by the blood of Christ. It means you can come into God's very presence without shame and you can be among his people without shame and that you can know and love each other without any hindrance to those relationships. He reclothes you. He unshames you. And then you feel that not only are you nearer to him, but you discover suddenly that you're nearer to others also. Because in being brought into the throne room of God, in finding that you were brought into a relationship with Jesus, you discover that there are many brothers and sisters at your shoulders, all around you, who share this common love for the Savior. And that is what it means to be part of the church. That's why he goes on and says in verse 14, he himself is our peace who's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. All of that prejudice that, that, that creeps in and destroys our relationships with each other, all of that ought to disappear in the church of Jesus Christ. He says he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. How does it happen? Because the gospel works on you in two directions. Firstly, it humbles you to the ground. Jesus says no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they come in like a child. So anyone who comes in sort of slightly proud about the things they've done with their life, he he turns away at the door. He says the only way you can come in to the kingdom of God is like a child. In other words, empty-handed and totally incapable of building your own righteousness before God. Which means that nothing of who you are, your background matters to Jesus when he wants to save you. He just wants you. It humbles you to the ground. Which of course means that none of us can 
stand over each other as though we are superior to one another when we are in the church. Because, but then the second thing he does is he elevates us with the dignity of, of what it means to be in his throne room, in his presence, part of his family. It's what Paul is telling us here. When he says in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And I don't think there's any other message in the world that does these two things to the human heart. Humbles you to the ground and then elevates you with the dignity of knowing that you you belong. A lot of people preach the second thing. What it means to be elevated. That's the doctrine of the modern age, isn't it? We're all equal. But they don't preach the first thing, which is that you, you must renounce yourself. That there must be that acknowledgement of that humility. That your worth does not stand on, who you, on what you've done with your life, but rather on what Christ says about you. True community in a fragmented city. Here's the second thing. The church offers true solidity in an unstable city. I think there's a huge amount in the world going on at the moment, which, if you're a thinking person, will make you feel slightly insecure and worried. There's nations which are, which are changing before our very eyes. I mean, what's going on? Who knows whether Spain will exist in the, same, in the same way it does today in a year's time? How does a nation change? The global order of things is changing. We've, in many ways, been, been privileged to to have probably the most benevolent superpower that's in the history of humankind sort of dominating world politics for, for half a century. But many people are saying that the era is, is, is things are changing. That new powers are on the ascendancy. And that the world, the whole balance of power is shifting in the world right now. And none of us really know what's going to happen. I can't predict whether it will be good or whether it will be bad. But one thing you can predict is it will be different. The world is going to change. And we feel this very close to home as well, don't we? The flux of what's going on with, uh, with our own nation's sort of decisions and the Brexit thing. And I know some of you in this room are fearing for your, your jobs and your livelihood and your careers and all these kinds of things. You don't know what the implications will be for you. And even if you're not thinking on that scale... London life is full of, of change all the time, isn't it? I mean, we moved seven times in the first five years of marriage. And that was not unusual. Some of you move twice a year. And there's constant, constant change in your life and not stability. And then we, we think about the future and we're aware that there are, there, are these, there are these things hanging over us that we have no idea what's going to happen in the world. You know, I was chatting with a friend um, uh, called Brian Barr, who's a pastor in, in Houston, in Texas. And he said that when they had the recent um, hurricane and the floods that came on the back of that hurricane in, their, in, in Houston, he said that most people have insurance, flood insurance for their homes, but most people's flood insurance goes to, like, say, 100-year floodlines, which means the most rain you'd expect once every 100 years. He says very few people are insured beyond that. And the recent rainfall in Houston reached the 1,000-year mark. And only a small percentage of the city had insurance to cover them for the once-in-a-thousand-year flood. Because no one expects that kind of change so rapidly, do they? The weather's changing. The computers are taking over. You know, is, will you have a job in five to ten years' time? You know, if, 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 if companies like DeepMind have the way, then possibly not. 
And you, and you think this, this world that we're, we're entering, that we're moving into, is a world of massive instability and, trans- and change. And you're familiar with the language of insecurity that at a very personal level, people experience deep insecurities, don't they? And, and uncertainties, lack of stability. But I, I think what we're, we're beginning to experience more and more is kind of a communal insecurity. That there is a, a sense of dread, a sense of fear that can hang over as a result. Which is because nothing in life seems solid or lasting. Back in verse 12, Paul said, this. He said that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. In the Bible, there is nothing more solid than a promise. One of God's promises. And a covenant of promise is like putting your feet on solid ground. And he says, that's not your life. You were outside of that. You didn't have that certainty, that solidity in your existence out without God. And I want you to understand this, that that sense of instability is not just an illusion. You could kind of like just think to yourself, I'm worrying too much. Things will be fine. Things will pan out fine. And maybe in some senses they will, but I want you to understand that instability is an absolute fact of life without God. That the permanence is the illusion. Because what in this world has lasted? What can you point to and say is ancient and unchanging? I would argue that the church is the one exception to this. It's the only institution that God himself has guaranteed as permanent. Look at verse 20. He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone is the image of total immovability, Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Over in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, he talks about this, this stability in the face of crumbling. He says at that Time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This is God speaking and saying that the way he has constructed things is he doesn't want you to be reliant upon institutions and nations and things outside of him. Because he can just shake them and they start to fracture and to change. But then he says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You've got to understand, okay, that when you look through history, what you see in the church is an institution that was born into suffering and has this supernatural grit. It's part of its very identity as a church that in the face of massive change and even of opposition, the church prevails you also see when you look through history the absolute fact that the church outlived all of the empires that it was a part of they crumbled and fell and the church exists 
And that the church is adaptable across cultures and contexts. And that wherever it goes, it sets up something new and something solid. And therefore, friends, I think this has huge implications for your, your own future. Because we can talk about history like this, can't we? And nations and whatever's happening on that level. But don't you realize that this bears on how you live your own life? You get to choose, right? You get to choose on what you build this short life of yours. What you invest in. What you're given to. What you're passionate about. And I don't want to say that other things are unimportant. I think if you've heard anything of what I said the past few weeks, hopefully that is not the message you'll hear right now. But I do want to say this. That when you are a Christian, you get to be part of and invested in the most important and lasting structure in the universe. He ended this section, verse 22, by saying, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He pictures you, every one of you, who knows and loves Jesus as being part of his great superstructure, the new temple that he's building. He says, you want to live a life that's lasting and of eternal worth and significance? You cannot go wrong by being devoted and dedicated to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my last point. It offers true spirituality in a profane city. London is not an obvious place to come to experience spiritual renewal. You don't, uh, you know, I, I've never heard a teenager in their gap yard saying that they were going to come to London to find themselves, right? People head off to the kind of exotic regions where they imagine that you can be really spiritual, and like Southeast Asia and things like that. No one, nobody comes to London for that reason. They come to London to party, to enjoy hedonism, to whatever, those things at that age, right? And nobody comes to London because they think that's where I need to be to find God and to center my life upon him. In fact, much of the city seems opposed and at war with true spirituality, doesn't it? There's your day-to-day busyness, which is a, is, is in opposition to giving your mind and heart to spiritual pursuit. There's the disconnection from nature, which I don't think is unimportant in knowing something of who God is. The Bible says that God preaches who he is through nature, through creation. It says it in a couple of places. And, and certainly you don't, you don't trot down Oxford Street breathing the air and just glorying in God's goodness, do you? It's just not what happens. It's like you choke and cover your mouth and hope that you don't bump into strangers. And I mean, this week we're taking away some of our key leaders in the church who lead ministries and life groups. And do you know what? We're not, we're not doing it in London. We're taking them out of the city. I know, gasp in view of everything, everything I've been saying the last month. But there is something about that, that refreshing that you can experience in nature. And we want, we're having a little retreat with these guys. And certainly people don't head into the city for spiritual retreat, do they? There's the seductions of the city. We've talked about this, of materialism, and of sensuality, and of success, and all these things that crowd in on your mind and take over your agenda so that God becomes very, very small in your, in your view and even in your rear view mirror. 
And there's the endless distractions of being in a place like this. That you're never bored because you can always do something or see someone. And it means that London is a city that, if anything, it's known for being profane. The word profane means outside of the temple. So if the temple is the place of spirituality, everything that's outside the temple is called profane or secular. And London is understood and known to be a profane city. There is, there is no part of London's reputation that is wrapped up with spirituality, is there? Nobody in the world thinks about London as a spiritual city. What does this do to us if we experience life only on the profane level? I think there are, there are basically two ways that people answer that. They come from two opposing views. Some people will say, well, we're not spiritual beings, so it's fine. We've shed the weight of religion. I know they're kind of on the wane these days in terms of their influence, but you know, five, seven, eight years ago, the new atheists were all about ridding the world of the deception of religion. And so they celebrate the idea that we can live a profane existence without the influence of spirituality. But then I would want to, if that's where you're coming from, I would just want to push back a little bit and ask you a couple of questions. Why is it that you still feel the longing? Why is it that even if you pride yourself on being a secular person, you cannot shake the internal itch that tells you that something is missing in your life? That is a universal experience. Why is it that in your most vulnerable moments, you sense something of your isolation in a cold universe? I think it's because of what Paul says here in verse 12 again. He said, you're strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what a profane existence is. No hope and without God in the world. There's a philosopher called Charles Taylor in Canada who describes the rise of secularism over the centuries the world becoming disenchanted. If once upon a time the world, everyone felt that spirituality was just there, just in front of you and around you. So that there were all kinds of powers and forces at work in the world. And Halloween is a hangover of those, those beliefs. He said the world has become disenchanted and that it has, the roof has closed in upon us. The world has become smaller, this physical existence that we now live in. But it's weird, isn't it? How we can't shake the spiritual instinct. It's just like if you take a lion out of the jungle and put him in a cage. That lion still wants to hunt and to kill. Or if you take a bird out of the jungle and put it in, or anything out of the jungle for that matter. <laughs> if you take a bird and put it in a cage, the bird still wants to sing even if there's no, other of it, no others of its kind to sing to. Because some things are wired in, deeply wired in. And you've got to ask yourself why. You've got to ask yourself why this, this longing for God is so deeply wired into us if we are not made by him, which is the assumption, isn't it? What, what purpose does that serve in a materialist universe? You could approach it from the other end, though, and say, 
No, we are spiritual beings. And to neglect that is to experience a deficiency, not unlike malnutrition. Over the millennia, I think it was Hippocrates first observed that scurvy was a problem for people who, you know, I don't, I don't know what he observed, I'm making it up. He observed something about scurvy. And um, anyway, scurvy, do you know what scur- scurvy is? Uh, is a disease that afflicts people who have not had enough vitamin C. And particularly over the, over the centuries, sailors who were out at sea for long periods of time, then they didn't eat anything fresh, nothing with vitamins in it, right? And over, firstly, you'd experience tiredness and lethargy. And then your teeth would start falling out. Then you'd have emotional changes. And eventually you'd die. And of course, people began to realize that if you gave these guys citrus fruits, they would survive and live. But I, I think in many ways, the city has spiritual scurvy. That there's a kind of a malnutrition when you, when you don't know God. That, that, that brings about all this brokenness in, in the human person. And this longing that's never satisfied. And this craziness of living life full tilt, trying to get satisfaction. What is that? That's a sickness, guys. Don't you see what that is? That's not healthy, balanced living. It might look healthy on the outside, but it's not healthy. And here's where I want to come in and talk to you about the church as we wrap this up. In some ways, you know, it's actually easier to discover true spirituality in the city than anywhere else. I've seen it countless times in this city. People come from all over the place and all over the world. And somehow, by God's grace, upon coming to London and coming to a healthy church, that is where they discover God. Maybe a faith that they grew up with but became irrelevant to them. But somehow their spirituality is set on fire here in the city where that shouldn't happen. And in many ways, it's easier here in London for you to experience that. I'll give you a couple of reasons. One is because the city intensifies your longing because you try everything else and realize that it is deeply dissatisfying. It's like you go everywhere and you're drinking seawater and you're getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. You're trying this, you're trying that. You're trying, you tried the career, you tried Tinder, you tried um, the drugs, you tried everything and nothing quite dealt with that that inner yearning. And, and if London is the best that the world has to offer, then clearly the world cannot give you what you need. And that's why many people come to that crashing conclusion. I need God. There is only one answer to this. And another reason why it can actually be more easy to discover true spirituality in a city is because it just stands out against the city. You know that picture of being in the desert and then the oasis. The oasis is a place of such difference because there is real water there. All the animals gather at the oasis and discover life. You can be in the city and have nothing but sand. And when you see the real thing, it stands out. And I want to say one warning before I close. There's a danger... There's many, many, I think, in London, in their desperation for spiritual reality, they grasp at whatever vague spirituality they see. 
So Londoners, you know, are very typical of Western mindset in this way, in that they will they will they will latch on to a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So I'll take a little bit of Buddhism, or I'll take a little bit of yoga, or I'll take a little bit of headspace, or whatever it is, and I'll integrate it into my life to round me out and to give me that sense of spirituality that I think must be the thing that's missing because I feel so stressed out and crazy. What, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. It's, it's, it's Western materialist mindset again. It's the commodification of religion. Thinking that religion is something that you can turn into a commodity and then purchase or just buy a little bit for yourself into a lifestyle choice. An optional extra. Like when you go to the gym, you take out a gym membership and you, you add in the sauna option. And that's how people approach spirituality in London. They think, if I need to have a fully rounded life, I need the relationship tick, I need to be healthy tick, and I need a little bit of spirituality, just enough, maybe it's 10 minutes before I go to work, or an hour here or there, just to kind of round out my life and give me that fullness of existence so that I am now the person, the fully rounded person that I intend for myself to be. And I want to warn you that, friends, that's not how it works. The only spirituality that will have the right impact on your life is the true kind. Jesus is not merely a mythical option. He is a man who came into history and did things for you that were real and true and happened in space and time. He really died on the cross for you and no one else in history has done that. He really was raised from the dead and that has not been, that didn't, no other savior was raised from the dead for you. He really is now seated at the Father's right hand and ready to offer you forgiveness if you want it even today. So what I mean, that spirituality has to be in truth. It's not just a lifestyle choice. You're confronted by the man, by the person of Jesus. He has certain demands. Verse 18 gives us pretty much the summary of it all. He says, For through him, we both, he means Jew and Gentile, and he's talking about the church, have access in one spirit to the Father. It's a beautiful verse because we've got the church, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father all in one little verse. And that is the gospel, friends. It's in the church that we come together through Jesus, through his blood, through the forgiveness he purchased to us on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit who changes your life to the Father, to the throne of grace where you experience mercy and help. And you know what? It's not hard. You only have to ask. I know that there are some of you in the room today who are not Christians. And you're thinking, I would like that. And I would love to pray with you. I would love to invite you to to come to Jesus and just experience his forgiveness for the first time and his welcome into the family. You know, your experience of coming to church will change overnight if you do that because suddenly you, you won't feel like you're on the outside pressing your face up against the glass. You'll feel like you belong to the family and that is rightly how you should feel. 